Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa podcast. I'm your host, Andy. During our last episode, we looked at the potentially mythological, but nonetheless extraordinary, rule of King Degnajun of Oxen. However, the episode ended on something of a cliffhanger. Despite Degnajun's immense success in unifying the power of the state behind the king, breaking the growing power of the church, and expanding the reach of his empire, he proved to be the second-to-last king in Oxumite history. So, how did Oxum so quickly regress from this period of reinvigoration and conquest, and regress into a decline which proved terminal? Episode 28, The Fall of the Oxumite Empire, Part 1. Abasa Wedem, Wise Regent or Cruel Usurper? Like many of the most effective rulers throughout history, Degnijan struggled with one of the hardest aspects of ruling a country, that is, determining who would reign after you died. In every society and across every culture, it's very likely that that culture has at least one story of potential heirs arguing and squabbling over who will get to be the next person to sit on the throne. Heck, even just within our podcast season on Oxum, we've already seen this type of conflict play out with the sons of Abraha fighting over Yemen. So, why is this conflict so common? Is it just unavoidable? And what in particular makes it so difficult for these kings to just, like, choose an heir? Well, the biggest issue is, of course, the availability of a clear and eligible heir to begin with. Say a king does not have an eligible son, or, in some rare cases, an eligible daughter. Well, we've seen this a few times before in the series as well. In the case of Azana, when his father died, the young Azana was still just an infant, someone still figuring out how to not wet himself, much less someone whose head you could plop a crown on and expect to be a competent ruler. So, in his place, Azana's mother ruled as a temporary placeholder, until Azana was old enough to govern in his own right, protecting him from people who might try to take advantage of the lack of a true king and seize power for themselves. Or, as we've seen multiple times throughout this series, you can pass power to a brother, uncle, nephew, or another trusted family member. You can even, maybe, adopt a close friend or distant relative, so that he may serve as your legal heir. So, as you can see, there are plenty of solutions to take if you don't have a clear heir. However, the situation that Degnajan found himself in was even harder to remedy. You see, Degnajan didn't face the problem of a lack of eligible heirs. In fact, he had a problem of too many. While the exact number of sons he had is not certain, most people speculate that there was a lot of them, we know that there were at least two that mattered. The eldest of Degnajan's sons was named Abasa Wedem. Abasa Wedem would, as the elder son, normally be favored to take the throne. We don't know exactly how Oxumite succession worked, and it seemed to vary by era, but this was usually the default state of things, that the eldest son of the former king would inherit the throne. But, despite being the default choice of successor, Degnajan struggled to decide between Abasa Wedem and his youngest son, Delnaud, as his successor. The decision on who would succeed him to the throne was made harder when a sickness struck Degnajan, who was already weak from his advanced age. Suddenly, the decision on who would take the throne after his death was no longer a matter to decide in the distant future, but a decision of utmost urgency. However, despite the newfound urgency, Degnajan still struggled to make up his mind. So, like any wise decision maker, he pawned the decision off to somebody else. The old king made a final request that the Abana, Peter, should choose between the two sons, and decide who would rule Oxum when he passed on. Now, remember, Peter was a political appointment basically a puppet for the king to increase his influence within the church. Until now, this was his only job, just basically acting as a rubber stamp for whatever the king wanted to do. And now, suddenly, he's been saddled with the burden of picking a new king. The Avana made an unusual decision of crowning Del Naud, the younger son, 
as the new King of Oxen. Now, oh boy, if you thought that Degnagen's legacy seemed a bit mythical and uncertain, his son Delnaud is on a whole different level of strange and enigmatic. While Degnagen is generally considered to at least be somewhat of a historical figure whose legacy may be imbued with some exaggerations and mythologies, Delnaud is completely up in the air as to whether or not he was even real at all. The number of reliable historical sources which confirm or even hint at his existence is shockingly slim. While many of the events that purportedly happened under his short reign are at least vaguely hinted at by fairly reliable ecclesiastical records, foreign observations, and archaeological evidence, the evidence that supports the historicity of Delnaud himself is essentially non-existent. On the other hand, though, Many of these sources, such as the histories of the Patriarch of Alexandria and the somewhat reliable history of Teclahymeno, do mention the existence of some King of Oxum at the time, whose early biography seems to at least somewhat match with the supposed early life of Delnaud. However, I include this disclaimer because, as we'll see throughout the next episodes, the details of the reign of Delnaud are, well, controversial to say the least, with many differing and often contradictory accounts of his reign existing throughout the various oral and ecclesiastical traditions of Ethiopia. And that's not even to mention that his purported existence will play a huge role in the politics that follow the fall of Oxen, but that's, you know, a whole other story. Now, I'll get into the nitty-gritty of what's probably true and what's probably not in a little bit, but for now, I want to start by telling a fairly straightforward version of the most common story of Delnaud, and we'll dissect the whole story and see what verifiable facts we can weed out from it. So, almost immediately upon donning the crown of Oxen, Delnaud begins to run into problems. The first of these problems that he was trying to follow the tumultuous and eventful reign of his father. If you'll remember back to our last episode, Degnajun had put a lot of work into centralizing the power of the feudal and divided Oxmite realm under his control. He had gone out of his way to ensure the appointment of an easily controlled Abana to limit the power of the ambitious church elites, and then using this newfound power of the church to bring the landowners of the countryside to heel. Now, while Dagnajan had succeeded in implementing these radical centralization reforms, he had obviously made quite a few enemies in the process. Those ambitious priests and landowners weren't so happy about having their power curtailed by the king, and so, while feigning goodwill and loyalty, likely held quite a few resentments against the Negus in private circles. Not to mention, Delnaud also had a brother who was himself not so happy about being passed up for what he kind of rightly saw as his crown. When the decision to crown Delnaud as the next Negusinagast was announced, Abbas Wadem stormed angrily out of the capital of Kubar and brought a small entourage of his close friends and supporters with him. Sensing a rift within the royal family, two influential priests, Menas and Victor, hatched a scheme. If they could find a way to convince the elder brother to take the throne and remove the Abana Peter from his position, then the king's influence over the church would be broken. Then, the church elites could regain the autonomy and prestige they had once enjoyed before the rule of Degnachan. So, these two scheming priests decided to disguise themselves as Egyptian bishops, and set out in search of the older brother, Abbas Wedem. When they found him, they claimed to be delivering a letter from the Patriarch of Alexandria himself. News has reached us that there has come to you an erring man, whose name is Peter, and that he has said about us that we sent him to you as a metropolitan. This is not correct, and neither are the letters with him from us, nor have we consecrated him. His documents of consecration are counterfeits. The real patriarch who we really sent shall come to you with our letters in his hands. On being informed of this, remove Peter from you and install Menas, the man delivering this letter, 
in his stead. News has also reached us that he unjustly seated the younger son of the king on the throne and rejected the elder. So, in summary, Menas and Victor gave Abbasuadem a fake letter from Alexandria, which claims that it is actually Peter who is an imposter, and that the true Abana, Menas, supported his claim to the throne. Upon reading the contents of this letter, Abbasuadem purportedly began jumping and shouting in a manic excitement. Not only did this letter outright state that his claim of kingship was more legitimate than his brother's, but it also offered a way to remove that doddering old man Peter who had crowned his little brother in the first place. Whether or not he truly believed in the authenticity of their claim, it was exactly what Abbasuadem wanted to hear. And people tend to believe what they want to believe. With his small entourage and the pretend Abana, Abbasuadem roamed from estate to estate, convincing local nobles and landowners to support his cause. However, he found little success. A few years had passed since Delnout had been put on the throne, and now these nobles had grown used to living life without a firm and powerful hand like his father's on the throne. Oxum had once again began to revert into a system of local feudalism. The ethnically diverse nobility of the Oxumite realm were, frankly, indifferent at this point to whoever ended up being recognized as the king. In fact, many of them might have actually had some reason to be happy with Delnout's reign so far, a topic we'll touch on later in the episode. Regardless, Abbasawadem carried on. He and his small army of supporters arrived at the capital of Kubar, overcame the small garrison, and placed the Abana Peter under arrest. Before we continue with the story, I'd like to take a quick break to thank this episode's sponsor. Do you love to read as much as I do? If so, check out the Thoughts from a Page podcast, where, with an informal, conversational, and engaging manner, Cindy, the podcast host, routinely gets authors to open up about what's important to them, giving busy readers the backstory to their favorite, or as of yet undiscovered, books. She and her guests talk about books spoiler-free, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then they delve into things that you won't hear about elsewhere, like the importance of cover design, why an author included various aspects of their story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform, including the one you're listening on right now, and learn more about it from Cindy's website, thoughtfromapage.com. However, while I'd like to continue telling this story in a straightforward manner, we've reached a place in the story where certain discrepancies between the different versions really start to make a difference. What happened to the Negus, Delnaud, after his brother's coup changes dramatically depending on which versions of events you believe. And, in fact, much of the disagreement seems to stem entirely from one aspect of Delnaud that I conspicuously chose not to mention until now. Now, while I mention that Delnaud is the younger of the two sons of Degnajun, how old exactly was Delnaud when he was crowned? And, just as importantly, how much time has actually passed since Delnaud was first elevated to the throne? Well, the answer to the, both of these questions is that it depends. The first version, which I'll call the Long Reign Hypothesis, argues that Delnaud was, in fact, an adult when he was crowned, or at least enough of an adult to be considered a legitimate king in Oxum at the time. Additionally, as you can probably tell by its title, Delnaud's reign after being crowned was not an insignificant amount of time. According to the book Layers of Time, a book with some significant flaws, I might add, the author Paul Henze argues that Delnaud ruled the Oxumite Empire for about a decade, and even credits his regime with the construction of several important churches and monasteries. In this tradition, Abbas Wedem is portrayed as a jealous usurper who is after his brother's rightful throne, and after the coup, Delnaud flees into the countryside with his own group of supporters. 
However, some alternative stories about Delnoud paint a very different picture of events. In this picture of events, which I'll call the Baby King version, Delnoud was barely older than an infant when the crown of Oxen was placed upon his head. In this retelling, Abasa Wadam is actually painted somewhat sympathetically. He's not trying to steal the throne from his brother, but is actually just trying to take over a position that his younger brother is obviously not really ready for. If anything, this retelling of events puts more question on the motives of the Abuna Peter than anyone else. If this version of events is true, and the Abuna Peter decided to crown a literal infant as the King of Oxum over a more appropriately aged male relative, clearly something's going on here. Well, to me, this decision reeks of political conniving. Maybe, tired of being strong-armed by the king, Abuna Peter decided to pull a reverse card on who was controlling who. With an infant on the throne, Abuna Peter was essentially free to pull the strings of the kingdom. No, Abasa Wadem was not a cruel usurper, but instead a responsible statesman who was not only protecting the throne, but also protecting his brother from the exploitation of the Abuna. Rather than fleeing into the countryside, this version argues that Delnoud remained under the watchful eye of his brother, who groomed him to be his successor. And now we can see how just one detail of a story can completely turn the entire thing on its head. The hardest part about dealing with these two differing accounts of this story is that, well, both of them could be argued to line up pretty well with the events of the story confirmed by textual and archaeological evidence. For example, Ethiopian histories usually don't list Abasa Wadam as a king, and just jump straight from Degnajan to Delnoud. Well, if you believe the Long Reign version, that's because the later Ethiopian histories recognized Abasa Wadam as the illegitimate usurper that he was. On the other hand, if you believe the baby king version, then this is because Abasa Wadem never really claimed to be king at all, but was instead just acting basically as a regent, a temporary stopgap who would hold the throne until his brother was old enough. Remember, this is very much like what Azana's mother, Sophia, did when the crown was foisted on Azana as an infant. Well, despite basically acting as the de facto monarch of Oxum for years, Sophia was also not listed as a king in Ethiopian histories. Additionally, the years following Abasa Wadem's seizure of power were a time of unrest and strife among the Oxumite nobility and priesthood, with rebellions and uprisings becoming commonplace. Again, why this was happening changes based on your interpretation of events. Were these nobles revolting because they didn't recognize Abasa Wadem as legitimate? Or were they just mad that the weak child King Delnoud had been replaced with an actually competent leader who threatened their autonomy? Personally, either of these explanations seemed totally plausible to me. Well, regardless of which story you believe happened to Delnoud, it became almost immediately clear that Manus was undoubtedly a cynical usurper for the position of Abina. Once Abasa Wadam elevated Manus to this position of leading the Aksumite church, the priests who had been loyal to Peter immediately started asking questions about this new Abina. This Manos guy claims to be an Egyptian sent by the Patriarch of Alexandria as the new leader of the church, but he looks pretty Ethiopian to me. He doesn't even speak with an accent, either. And hey, now that you mention it, didn't you know a guy who knows a guy who worked with a priest named Manos? That's pretty fishy. Maybe we should go up to Egypt and investigate further. Well, it didn't take much investigation for Manos' story to fall apart. A delegation traveled to Alexandria to ask the Patriarch about this Manos guy, and see how much, if any, of his story was true. So, hey, Mr. Patriarch of Alexandria, there's this guy named Menas in Oxum, and he's claiming that you sent him to Ethiopia to depose our old Abana, who he says was a fraud. Do you know anything about that? To which the Abana was probably like, uh, no? I don't know anyone named Menas, and I'm pretty sure we did send a guy named Peter. 
So, with proof of Menas's deception, the priests returned to Ethiopia and presented their evidence to the Negus. Now, Abbasawaydam may have been shocked by this revelation, or maybe he was already aware of Menas's illegitimacy. But, regardless of whether it was motivated by legitimate surprise, or was just an attempt to distance himself from the usurping Abana, Wadam ordered the exile of Menas and Victor, and called for Peter to be reinstated as Abana immediately. After all, despite their disputes and disagreements, Wadam simply did not have the legitimate authority to exile the true Abana. However, while his image was already tarnished by the scandal, things were about to get worse for Abasa Wadam. The men he ordered to summon Peter to the capital returned, but Peter was nowhere to be found. While in exile, the old Abana had died. This was a shocking blow to the prestige of the Aksumite monarchy, and was especially damaging to its relationship with the Coptic Church of Egypt. The Aksumites had specifically requested that an Egyptian priest return to the position of Abana after years of silence, only for him to be treated with this kind of disrespect. It was unbelievable. When Abbasa Wadam sent a diplomatic mission to Egypt to beg for the appointment of a new Abana, the patriarch laughed them out of the room. Wedem, recognizing how devastating the failure to receive a new Abana would be for his control over the church, desperately tried to convince the patriarch otherwise. He sent multiple ambassadors to Egypt, and even wrote to the Christian king of northern Nubia, George II of Mercuria, in a desperate, failed bid to secure a new appointment. However, the Coptic Church would never send a replacement for Peter to the Oxumite Empire, and Peter would go down in history as the last Abana of the Oxumite Church. Apart from the obvious blow to the legitimacy of the state that this complete blundering of foreign and religious affairs had caused, the failure of Abbasawadem to secure a new appointment of Abana was what proved especially devastating. As we learned last episode, the presence of an Abana, who the king could control and keep accountable, was incredibly necessary to control the power of the ever-growing Oxumite church. Wedem's control over the church once again began to unravel, and without the legitimacy and threat of divine power that the church wielded, it was essentially impossible for Abbasa Wedem to keep the nobility under his control. The ability to collect taxes and raise armies essentially evaporated, and Oxum was plunged from its brief era of resurgence to its lowest point ever. Aksum, until recently the most powerful empire in the Ethiopian highlands, was now governed by a failed state teetering on the brink of collapse. However, no story of the fall of the Aksumite Empire is complete without what would come next. As the Aksumite state implodes in on itself, threats are emerging in the east, west, and south. A collection of disorganized tribes and clans in the east has just united under the banner of a powerful emir. The recently conquered Sidamo states are once again revolting against Aksumite rule and the imposition of Christianity. And finally, the Jewish kingdom of Semyon to the west is experiencing the peak of its power and threatening to expand into Aksumite territories. Finally, tying all of these growing enemies together is the mysterious vignette of the most infamous figure in Aksumite history, the legendary queen Gudit. Join us next episode as we attempt to uncover who this mysterious queen really is how she rose to power, and, if she even existed at all, how true are the legends of her evil deeds. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like the show and the free education we provide, then I'd encourage you to support the show. This can be done by a monetary donation to our Patreon, which can be found on our website, historyofafricapodcast.blogspot.com. By giving the show a review on iTunes, or by sharing the podcast to anyone who you think might be interested.
This episode, like all others, is brought to you by our patrons. Raul Kanakia, Ayo Fagbamie, Aaron L., and Kevin Johnson, among others. Thank you for helping to make the show happen.